There's only one problem with this analysis, which is that despite what Putin says, Russia does not have an existential interest in this war. Ukraine does. Russia doesn't. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. In the early hours of Tuesday, June 6, a major dam on the Dnipro River in Russian-occupied Ukraine suffered catastrophic damage. Floodwaters are now rushing downstream and sending tens of thousands of people fleeing. The path of these destructive floodwaters roughly follows the front lines between Russian and Ukrainian forces in southern Ukraine. And this breach comes just as Ukraine's much-anticipated counteroffensive gets underway. This obviously raises the question, did Russia sabotage the Kakova Dam to thwart a Ukrainian counteroffensive? I'm joined today by former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, John Herbst. He is a retired career foreign service officer and now the senior director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. We kick off discussing the destruction of the Kakova Dam, including the likelihood that it was deliberately destroyed by Russia. We then have an extended conversation about what the destruction of this dam means for Ukraine's counteroffensive. On the very same day as the dam's breach, John Herbst and his Atlantic Council colleague Dan Freed published an op-ed in the Washington Post arguing that a Ukrainian counteroffensive along the now-flooded Southern Front would be the surest way to secure a Ukrainian victory. Specifically, they contend that a counteroffensive that seeks to recapture Crimea would accelerate the end of the conflict in Ukraine's favor. We discuss this idea at length, which is controversial for the fact that many analysts contend that Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014, is something of a red line for Putin. This conversation is obviously very timely. You will learn a lot about the impact of this flood on the conflict in Ukraine and also some of the larger decisions that Ukrainian leaders and their backers in the West need to make as this counteroffensive gets underway. And a reminder that we're in the midst of a fundraising drive. Please do take a moment and support the show with a recurring monthly contribution to help us keep on bringing you 
Global Dispatches, twice a week, every week, indefinitely. There are three ways you could support the show. If you are listening to me now on Apple Podcasts, you can subscribe to the show with just a few taps of your finger. If you are on our email distribution list, you can commit to a monthly recurring contribution directly in the Substack platform. Otherwise, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches and make a contribution from there. I am platform neutral. Whatever is easiest for you is what you should do. And thank you. Thank you so much for helping us put together this show week in and week out. It makes a difference. Now here is my conversation with John Herbst, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and currently the senior director of the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council. Can I have you situate geographically the Kakova Dam and explain its importance in the region? Well, it's on the Dnipro River, and it's in the south of Ukraine. And it's been under Russian control since early in their big offensive, which started on February 24 of last year. Could I just have you elaborate further and explain its connection to the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant? My understanding is that a key reservoir, a pond that serves as a cooling mechanism, is impacted potentially by the leakage of this dam downstream. Well, that's correct. Nuclear power plants need lots of water to keep the reactors and the nuclear material below a certain temperature. Above that temperature, it's dangerous. So that dam regulated water flow, which supplies the nuclear reactor. So this will make the maintenance of the reactor more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult. So this is one of many features or impacts of this explosion. And downstream from the explosion of the dam, like what have we seen thus far? Well, you've seen flooding in towns nearby. You've seen people have to evacuate. And of course, suddenly you have a kind of lake which may disappear over time. And you'll have soggy ground which will disappear, but over a much longer time. And this is an area which possibly could have been and may still be in contention as Ukraine has just begun its counteroffensive. And my understanding also is that the major city of Kherson is impacted because it lies downstream from this dam, which is now swelling. Do we know anything thus far about what's happening in Kherson? No, but this will create a water supply problem for the entire downstream area, which includes you know, a city, the city of Kherson. So it's certainly a problem in many respects. And another aspect of this problem, they say that water is seriously polluted. And so this creates an environmental problem as well. I also saw that the United Nations earlier today warned that mines and unexploded ordnance might be kind of flowing freely, willy-nilly because of this dam burst. Yes. And it's also true, though, that the deluge is covering fields which were probably mined by the Russians who are concerned about this Ukrainian counteroffensive, have been concerned about it for six or so months now. 
So, you know, we don't have any definitive sense of how or why or who caused this damage at the dam. Do you have a sense, like, what would you speculate happened with the dam? Well, a cui bono analysis, you know, who benefits, would point the finger at the Russians because this dam will seriously complicate Ukraine's plans for a counteroffensive in the South. And while I've not predicted that Ukraine was definitely going to head in South, certainly heading towards the Sea of Azov, towards the coast, is strategically the best thing Ukraine can do if, in fact, they can achieve success heading south. And we know the Russians have been extraordinarily nervous about this counteroffensive. So again, a qui bono analysis would point the finger at them. The international community knows that the Russians have mined that dam since last fall when they were worried about a possible Ukrainian offensive across the Dnipro River. And I've heard from non-official Ukrainian sources, but credible ones, that the explosion was from within. And that's an area, of course, which the Russians control as opposed to being the result of Ukrainian artillery firing into the dam. Yeah, I mean, it would seem like Autumn's razor would suggest like the Russians did it. Correct. If not for the fact that you know they have routinely targeted civilian infrastructure in Ukraine. It's, it's like part of their whole war plan. They controlled the area, and the timing of this destruction also seems to coincide with the start of this much-anticipated counter-offensive. Is there anything you could say uh, about the timing of this counter-offensive? Like, why are we seeing it finally get off the ground now after we've been sort of waiting for this to happen for so long and anticipating it for so long? Observers, including Russian observers, have thought this counter-offensive could have started early in the year when it was still um, quite, you know, winter. And we know the Russians have gotten increasingly nervous in regard to this offensive because Moscow's own offensive dribbled out at Bakhmut. They finally took that town, which Putin set as a deadline to be taken by the middle of December, but it's cost them, you know, a minimum of 20,000 dead, according to the mercenary Wagner's leader, Prigozhin's own statements. And, you know, U.S. and other Western intelligence agencies say the Russians have lost 100,000 casualties, which is usually three to four wounded to dead. So 20,000, 80,000 wounded, something like that. So that's a terrible cost for the Russians to take a town of no great strategic significance. So they've been very, very defensive about that. They've been defensive about the fact that you have this Russian opposition group that's been creating some havoc and the Bielhooded oblast of Russia without any significant pushback by Russian forces. So it's easy enough to imagine that, you know, spooked by the start of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, they decide now is the time to take out that dam. And, you know, as you noted earlier, the flooding caused from this destruction directly impacts what would be the front lines of a counteroffensive aimed at Crimea. Correct. You argue in a Washington Post op-ed that a Crimean counteroffensive would be key to ending the war in Ukraine, or at least accelerating an end to the war in Ukraine. Before we get into the meat and the crux of that argument, I do want to have you address a concern 
that other observers have leveled consistently since the start of this conflict, that Crimea is like a red line for Putin, that for historic and, and cultural reasons, Russians and Putin himself consider Crimea to be inviolable Russian territory. And if Crimea is indeed attacked or it's potentially lost, that that might cause Putin to escalate in pretty horrific ways, even potentially like nuclear escalation. Why do you dismiss that argument? Let's start with a very important baseline. Anytime you're dealing with an aggressive nuclear power, especially a nuclear power, which is the peer in nuclear weapons of the United States, you have to consider the possible use of nuclear weapons very seriously. And, you know, the United States has had a history of nuclear diplomacy going back to the late 40s. And we've always taken that into account as we've dealt with an aggressive Soviet Union and, and now an aggressive Russia. But nuclear practice, our own history, nuclear doctrine says it is a fool's position to let the other guy's nukes deter you from defending your interests. And sadly, that's what we've seen here. Contrary to Republican and Democrat administrations, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, even Carter and Reagan, this administration talks about Russian nuclear threats and says, we can't do certain things because the Russians might use nukes. That is unparalleled in American history. We have let Putin's frequent threats of using nukes deter us numerous times, and senior officials have said that. And we've also seen us cross Putin's alleged red lines without any mushroom clouds appearing on the horizon. And specifically, we've crossed Putin's red lines how? When first talk, serious talk, came of Finland and Sweden joining NATO, the Russians said, you know, this may require a nuclear response. We've heard several times, if you send X weapon systems, we have to escalate. So we've crossed, I don't know, several Russian red lines. Yet we've been deterred on numerous occasions, whether it was establishing a free fly zone over Western Ukraine, whether it was using American ships or NATO ships for naval convoy to get out grain, whether it was sending HIMARS with a range of 85 kilometers, whether it was sending anti-ship missiles, whether it was sending F-16s. How many times has someone in the administration said, we can't do X because Putin may escalate, he may use weapons of mass destruction? And after saying no, 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 we finally say yes, and again, no nukes. And so we've done this now with Crimea. While the Kremlin has been assiduous in what I call the ultimate psychological operation, the metaphor of Putin as the trapped rat in a corner who will inevitably strike out as in go after you, um, despite the cost, this is a 20-year developed metaphor, actually 23 years developed metaphor. And you have many, many Russian officials saying, you know, we may use nukes. And you have virtually the entire Russian disinfo apparatus making these claims. And you even have Russian think tankers emailing and telephoning their longtime American contacts saying, this is really serious. There's only one problem with this analysis, which is that despite what Putin says, Russia does not have an existential interest in this war. Ukraine does. Russia doesn't. 
When Russians had an existential interest in a war, World War II, Russians were rushing and other Soviets were rushing to the front to sign up. We now know what happened when Putin had his partial mobilization last fall. They lost minimum six or 700,000 Russian draft age men and as many as 1.5 million. You've even had a retired Russian general and a retired Russian FSB officer say publicly, of course, we're not going to use nukes in Ukraine. It's not existential. When NATO's marching on Moscow, then we'd use nukes. So you could imagine there is a scenario in which Crimea is liberated into Ukrainian hands and Vladimir Putin remains the unparalleled leader of Russia. I think that if Ukraine breaks the land bridge, Putin has a large political problem. I actually point out that we already see Putin's political problems since the successful Ukrainian counteroffensive last fall. But Putin, as Prigozhin intimated, and you're referring to the Wagner mercenary head, Vigeny Prigozhin. Correct. He's become an increasingly outspoken political actor. Oh, he sure has. Which is also a sign of, of the loosening of Putin's control. Putin could announce tomorrow, you know, we've dealt a terrific blow to those Nazis in Kiev, and now that we've taught them a lesson, I'm bringing my troops home. He can announce that, and given the control he has over the Russian media and the forces of repression in Russia, he could survive. But he has an obsession about Ukraine, which you might say psychologically does not permit him to do that. So what would a southern offensive by Ukraine aimed at liberating Crimea look like now, especially with large portions of that front flooded by the destruction of this dam? Well, just first on the dam with destruction and the flooding. That's not for all time, but that could prevent any serious action in that area for months. So that that obviously would slow it down, and that's the most direct route south. I mean, I don't know where the Ukrainians are going to seriously strike. What we're seeing in the last couple of days are probes not involving major forces. My personal view is they will take a hard look at the situation and decide where is the place they can most assuredly advance. If that's in the South, they'll take it. But if that's not in the South, they'll go somewhere else. But my point of view, and this is the point of view with Dan and I put in that column in the Washington Post, is that if Ukraine were able to break the supply route from Russia through Russian-occupied Donbass to Crimea, that would, one, force Russian soldiers in the south of mainland Ukraine, most likely to retreat to Crimea, although some might retreat to Russian-occupied Donbass, it would make it impossible to send supplies to Crimea on mainland Ukraine. If the Ukrainians also took out once and for all the Kerch Strait Bridge, which was hit, you know, last fall. And this is the bridge connecting Russia proper to Crimea. Correct. Over the Straits of Kerch. Then Russia would be reduced only to naval supplies which is a very expensive, and even the bridge, the bridge cannot hold nearly the supplies that the land route does. So it will be extremely expensive and difficult for Putin to supply both his military and even his civilian infrastructure. You know, the Russian people welcomed the seizure of Crimea in 2014 because Putin sold it to him as a costless victory. This would make that Russian occupation of Ukrainian Crimea extremely expensive, creating all sorts of problems in Russia. 
Can you just explain sort of the political impact of a potential, say, either severing of that southern line, the land bridge connecting Russian-controlled parts of Ukraine to Crimea, and also more broadly, like the political impact of that in Russia, and also potentially even like the political impact of losing Crimea totally? Like, why do you contend that that might accelerate the end of the conflict? Well, Putin still believes, and this is absolutely extraordinary, that he can achieve his original goals of establishing effective political control over Ukraine, despite the numerous defeats he has suffered since the big invasion. This would make it pretty clear that that's just not a possibility anytime soon within the foreseeable future. I mean, you could say the failure of their offensive this year, you know, peaking with seizing, perhaps only temporarily, as current battlefield developments suggest, the town of Bakhmut at horrendous casualties were suggested. But this would be a defeat that even Putin's vast information apparatus could not hide. So the loosening of Putin's control that we've seen since the counter-events of last fall, as all these senior Russian security types are at each other's throats, as full-time members of the regime, like Simonyan, the woman who runs RT, various members of the Duma distance themselves from the partial mobilization that Putin instituted last fall in response to the successful Ukrainian counteroffensive, all show shaking within the regime. And Ukraine's success last year, which was major, would still pale behind breaking the land bridge to Crimea. And again, the smart move for Ukraine, I mean, but who am I to judge or rather to give advice to a country facing a war of war crimes? But the smart move for them to me would be break the land bridge. You don't have to test the defenses of the isthmus connecting mainland Ukraine to Crimea because the situation for the Russians in Crimea will grow very, very difficult and even desperate. So, you know, in the coming weeks, and months as this counteroffensive gets off the ground, as it apparently has. I mean, what will you be looking towards to suggest to you how it might unfold? And are there any other potential Russian countermeasures that are particularly worrisome to you? I mean, within like a day of this counteroffensive, we saw the probable Russian destruction of a major dam displacing tens of thousands of people and destroying large swaths of, of the country. I mean, that's day one of, of the, the counteroffensive. What else might we expect in terms of Russia hitting back? It's really important once there's the clear evidence of Russian culpability that there'd be a strong response by the West and hopefully even more than the West. Because a ho hum response to this latest abomination would increase the odds of Moscow doing something nasty with the Zaporizhia reactor which we know is, is a very large nuclear reactor, which would have serious consequences, obviously in Ukraine, also in nearby Russia, but also elsewhere in Europe, to the West. You know, a smart Ukrainian suggested to me today that the blowing up of the dam also reflects recognition by 
Russian leadership that the people of Ukraine really have no interest in being under Putin's thumb. Obviously, they should have felt that before, and I think most of them did. Whether or not Putin was one of them is a different question. And lastly, in addition to any potential catastrophe at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant that might be instigated by Russia in response to the Ukrainian counteroffensive, are there any other indicators, either in terms of like what's happening on the ground in Ukraine or more broadly diplomatically, that will suggest to you how this counteroffensive is faring? Are there any key inflection points coming up or indicators you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you how this may play out? As always, diplomacy is downstream from the battlefield. So what happens on the battlefield has a major and often direct impact on what is possible diplomatically. Only rarely does it work in the other direction. So we will know how the Ukrainians are faring, how the Russians are faring, by what we see on the battlefield. You know, this is clearly the most publicly scrutinized war in history. So there's a a wealth of information out there. And I'm a retired diplomat. I left State Department 13 years ago, so I don't have access to classified information. But especially now from social media, often of which you have, you know, satellite imagery as well, commercial satellite imagery, you have a pretty good sense of what's going on. And that sense then conveys both on to the possibilities of a diplomatic solution, what a diplomatic solution might look like, but also it has political ramifications, especially in Russia or Ukraine too, as, you know, again, Russian defeats on the battlefield lead to political problems for the regime. Ambassador Herbst, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <music>